Hi, everybody. I'm Danielle Yet from the Critical Faith team. We're taking a break from our usual episode format to bring you a very special series of interviews about worldview topics and the studies that go on here at ICS. A little while ago, ICS junior member Grace Carhart sat down with our senior members and asked them to share their perspectives on four themes, wonder, heartbreak, hope, and worldview. Each episode highlights these themes in turn. Last week, Grace talked to our senior members about the theme of heartbreak. This week, Grace asks our senior members to talk about the theme of hope. So without further ado, enjoy. take any class that is being taught or has been taught by one of your peers here at ICS, which one would it be? And would you change the syllabus? Oh, interesting. Which would it be? Probably something like Ron's Wittgenstein class would be good for me. Particularly, I like, you know, his take, which is, you know, that this is a, it's a therapy because, you know, I do a lot with spiritual exercise and therapy as well. So, you know, and I don't, I've never read Wittgenstein, really. I mean, maybe a snippet here and there, but I've never really read him. And, you know, just listening to Ron, I just think, well, okay, so here's a contemporary therapeutic thinker. I should look at that because that would give me a lot of comparative material for the ancient and medieval therapeutes and you know, spiritual you know, practitioners of spiritual exercise. And would I change the syllabus? No, because I don't really know. I mean, the two, the philosophical investigations and the tractatus are kind of, I think that's, those are the texts that are used and they're kind of the, the twin peaks of, of Mount Wittgenstein. <laughs> oh gosh, of my peers. Crazy. Well, I did want to take, I wanted to take Ron's Wittgenstein. And I should—I kept thinking to myself, I should ask Ron if he'd care if I came in and sat in on his, on his Wittgenstein course. Yeah, and I didn't do it, and it's going to be another four years or something before it comes around. So I'm kind of sad about that. Um, would I change the syllabus? Oh, and I think in principle I probably would never deign to change anybody's syllabus. I, <laughs> yeah, I mean there are lots of courses here I would love to take. In fact, I think we've got one of the richest, most interesting uh, curriculums that <laughs> exists anywhere, to be frank. Uh, fascinating, cross-disciplinary, really interesting, and mutually enlightening, I think. Yeah. Well, if I would really wanted, have wanted to, um, when I was finishing my dissertation, taken um, some courses with Lambert Seidelberg on, uh, well, Hegel. Maybe even with uh, my former colleague Shannon Hoff, Hegel's a big, big fat hole in my philosophical background. I mean, I've read some Hegel, and of course you can't not know in basic terms what that was about, but I've never really climbed that mountain, which is probably something that I, you know, I've always kind of regretted. But as Merrill Westfall once told me, 
you can't be a philosopher if you can't talk about books you haven't read. So this would be the where that happens for me, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, probably that I would think. I don't. I would not change the syllabus. Uh, you should know that so far, Bob and Rebecca have both said that they would take your Wittgenstein class. Oh, nice, sweet. For the record. Wittgenstein was a philosopher of language who pretty much set the stage for all 20 and 21st century thought about language and the role it plays in human cognition. As you could tell from the recommendations you just heard, Ron taught a class on Wittgenstein the first semester of my first year here at ICS. I did not take it. To be fair, the strongest association with Wittgenstein that I have is from a lecture series that I attended while studying in Oxford as a wide-eyed undergraduate. A lecture series that was stuffy and jargony and filled with stuffy, jargony male philosophy students. The only thing I remember is the lecturer drawing, poorly drawing, may I add, a plant on the marker board to demonstrate some point about syntax or semantics or something. Perhaps I should have taken the Wittgenstein class here at ICS. Maybe I should brush up on my Hegel, too. On the other hand, as Merrill Westfall once told Ron Kuypers, most of academic philosophy is pretending to be well-read, or something like that. As Wittgenstein said himself, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. So, if you're familiar or are at least passingly acquainted with our new favorite trendy Austrian-British philosopher, welcome to our trendy North American language game, the Critical Faith Podcast. This is the third episode in a special four-part series of Critical Faith the ICS podcast sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics. For this series, I have sat down with the four main professors at ICS to chat about academia, personal experience, and religious life. In this episode, we'll talk about something a bit more dangerous than syllabus changing. Hope. Where do we look for hope in our everyday lives? What does it mean to live in hope? Or what about living without hope? To start the conversation, Ron begins with a passage from Hannah Arendt, talking about the nature of life. Um, And I asked you to bring a section of poetry or prose, so if you would like to... philosophy law? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so um, you told me about this about 10 minutes ago, so... Regrettably, he's not exaggerating. This whole process from interview to production has been new to me, which means that occasionally information was sprung on unsuspecting academics. My apologies, team. And uh, I guess people listening to this should know that um, this is the last week of the fall semester, so we're all gearing up for Christmas. Uh, It's December 13 today, so uh, in giving this a quick bit of thought, I thought, well, one of the passages that I really like that is reminiscent of a kind of an Advent feel is, interestingly enough, from a, a Jewish, uh, a secular Jewish philosopher named Hannah Arendt um, from The Human Condition. 
where she reflects on the human capacity for action as miraculous and as uh, Jesus uh, of Nazareth having some insight into that capacity. Um, so maybe I should just read it first before I comment on it. I want to give a bit of the context, so I'm going to read the paragraph before the one that I really want to emphasize. But she says on page 246 of the human condition, it is the faculty of action that interferes with this law, which is the law of uh, humans um, following a linear path from birth to death or eventual annihilation, because it interrupts the inexorable automatic course of daily life, which in its turn, as we saw, interrupted and interfered with the cycle of the biological life process. The lifespan of man running toward death would inevitably carry everything human to ruin and destruction if it were not for the faculty of interrupting it and beginning something new, a faculty which is inherent in action like an ever-present reminder that men, though they must die, are not born in order to die, but in order to begin. And she's paraphrasing Augustine there. Yet just as, from the standpoint of nature, the rectilinear movement of man's lifespan between birth and death looks like a peculiar deviation from the common natural rule of cyclical movement, thus action seen from the viewpoint of the automatic processes which seem to determine the course of the world looks like a miracle. In the language of natural science, it is the infinite improbability which occurs regularly. Action is, in fact, the one miracle-working faculty of man as Jesus of Nazareth, whose insights into this faculty can be compared in their originality and unprecedentedness with Socrates' insights into the possibilities of thought. So, which Jesus of Nazareth must have known very well when he likened the power to forgive to the more general power of performing miracles, putting both on the same level and within the reach of man. So this is the last paragraph that I wanted to read in the chapter on action in the human condition. The miracle that saves the world, the realm of human affairs, from its normal natural ruin is ultimately the fact of natality, in which the faculty of action is ontologically rooted. It is, in other words, the birth of new men and the new beginning, the action they are capable of by virtue of being born. Only the full experience of this capacity can bestow upon human affairs faith and hope. Those two essential characteristics of human existence which Greek antiquity ignored altogether, discounting the keeping of faith as a very uncommon and not too important virtue, and counting hope among the evils of illusion in Pandora's box. It is this faith in and hope for the world that found perhaps its most glorious and most succinct expression in the few words with which the Gospels announced their glad tidings. A child has been born unto us. That phrase that she paraphrases, she says from the Gospels, is actually, with the use of the word child, closer to Isaiah 9 verse 6. But Luke um, does pick up on it in uh, Luke 2 verse 11 and 12 which in my NRSV has, To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. Uh, this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. So, um, that's my prose piece. <laughs> The action of looking forward, of beginning anew, is, says Arendt, the miracle that saves the world from its normal natural ruin. As humans, our very construction graces us with the possibility of newness, and this is how we hope for a better world, 
for better lives. To get some other views on the subversive, tentative idea of hope, I posed a two-part question to my interviewees. What do you think hope is in an academic sense? And what have you experienced hope to be in your life? So, um, as I work as a theologian, I work a lot with the category of faith. And there are a lot of people that talk about faith as a good, the faith, like a deposit of beliefs or something like that. So I like to distinguish faith from belief, although I like to connect them too. But you need to distinguish them before you can connect them, it seems. So, so, so I like to talk about faithing, faithing, like a, make it a gerund. Um, and that, you know, helps move away from faith as a sort of deposit truths or something like that. And then within faith, faithing, there's trust and there's hope. Those are the two main words I would use for faithing. Uh, hope has a great deal to do with the future and what you trust and hope is coming. What will come into the world. Uh, not just what might develop out of what we've already got, a trajectory, a telos that we might be able to project or predict. But hope is welcoming the new in such that reality itself and the very conditions of possibility expand and are transformed. So you, you're dealing with what can't be predicted, but it can be anticipated. We can know in hope, but that kind of knowing is a welcoming in to this world of something that will expand meaning and move us beyond where we are. Not just more of the same, but the new. So hope and newness and promise are all interconnected and they're an important dimension to faith, along with trust and certainty and so that's a kind of i mean i'm not being ultra academic about it but i would speak that way in an academic setting too for sure yeah all i'm looking for really that there's one perfect academic definition of hope no that we can give well it there's a sense in which you're talking about something which can't be actually defined i mean newness is uh, something that moves beyond our, our categories for what presently exists anyway, even if we can recognize connections with once it comes, you can recognize how it connects, but you can't predict. <laughs> in, in Biblical prophecy is very interesting if you look at it as, as the experience of hope, not prediction, but um, promise. What's the difference between promise and prediction? Well, I think hope is closely aligned to uh, to expectation. So hope has a, a trajectory or is a principle of movement into the future, I would say, and with expectation. So with the expectation of the good, you might say, of something good or something better or uh, at least things not falling apart. Um, so... You know, so if that's a kind of minimal hope, is that uh, at least um, the the sort of good that you enjoy now can be maintained, or, or if 
if there isn't very much good, that there's an expectation and a sense that you can move into a future where there's less harm and so on and so forth. These are, these are all the things that go, go along with hope. And if I can cite Thomas Aquinas's discussion of hope, because I had to review a book on Thomas Aquinas's doctrine of hope. So I had to think about it quite a bit. Um, he said that, you know, hope has a foundation and that is that the world is, you know, ha- has itself a kind of trajectory toward toward an end. And the end is its maker, right? So God as the Alpha and the Omega. And the very nature of God, of course, by the time he talks about hope, he's already spent hundreds of pages talking about the nature of God. The nature of God is such that uh, God is the kind of being that can grant, you know, can grant hopes, right, is uh, is the source of all good and the destiny of all good. So, uh, you know, I don't know exactly where that all goes. That's Thomas Aquinas's language. I don't know how much of that is my language. Um, but, you know, for now, I'm going to go with that, that that forms a kind of spiritual ground for, but it, it's the expectation of uh, you know that the, that that one can move into the good or the better, and so on into the future, so that one is able to move into the future uh, with some enthusiasm and so on. I would say that's hope, and I don't think it's really different whether you're Christian or or something else. What I would say is different is that the the role of the God who reveals God's self in Jesus Christ would be something that uh, that a Christian would speak about. You know that it's the it's the experience of God in the stories of Christ uh, in the scriptures as they live in the church that give one the expectation that the universe inclines us toward our best. Um, you know, that the universe that God made inclines us toward our best and that uh, even in the context of, you know, a marred creation, that that same God who created a universe with anything but a level playing field that's all tipped toward the good, you know, will do anything to make sure that that continues to be available to us, you know, up to and including forsaking the form of God and taking on the form of sin and, you know, all the things that the Bible talks about. So I think that, you know, it's it's that story that becomes the anchor for expectation that marks out a Christian hope. But the there is a general structure, I think, that's just shared, and that is however it's anchored and expectation that things, things can be better, and it's in the future. Yes, humans do seem to have a good faculty for presuming that someday things will be better than they are now. Yeah, I think that's the basis. That's probably the experiential, uh, experientially valid root of, say, the doctrine of progress. You know, this. So, of course, the doctrine of progress, you just kind of go, well, I mean, it's, it's not like a mechanical process, hello. But, uh, you know, there is an experiential root, right? Otherwise, how how could it seem how could it seem plausible? It seems to me that the structure of hope is the root of the doctrine of progress. What do you mean by hope in an academic sense? Like, give what I find to be the conceptual definition of hope, or something like that? Yes, exactly. Well, it's you can't really. I think you would kill it if you gave an academic definition of it. You know, it's um, 
It's really the expectation that the impossible is possible. That's what I think ultimately. I mean, uh, maybe that is an academic definition. I don't think it is. I think it's pretty, I didn't use words that most people don't understand when I said it or whatever. But yeah, so, uh, it's the kind of thing that Arant was talking about in the, in the, in the passage I read, right? This human ability to notice that what under normal circumstances wouldn't be possible is possible. Um, if you think of something she talks about, Jesus is bringing forgiveness very close to, to miracles as the same kind of possibility. And if you think of real forgiveness as releasing, as a, as a you know, where a relationship where harm has occurred, and then where forgiveness has occurred as a true releasing of a, a new possibility after that traumatic breakdown, a possibility where the relationship can continue on in, in some kind of a healed way, then that does seem like kind of a miracle or something that could be impossible, right? That a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in a country could actually help a whole society go through a process of working through that kind of pain and suffering and infliction of, you know, violence and come out the other end, you know, maybe not perfect, maybe there's still problems, but not with some kind of being somehow released from some kind of eternal revenge cycle or something like that, right? So yeah, hope is for me the um it's it's that kind of virtue that sort of teaches you to um expect to be surprised. And maybe it's really related to wonder in a way. I think if you if you were able to wonder, you would it would be easier for you to hope because you'd be sort of open to being surprised or open to, to um, possibilities that aren't you know from our own best lights don't seem to be possible. Yes, I would agree. So far, no one has given me the uh, now hope is the expectation of things unseen. What is the Bible verse? I was about to do that. That's Hebrews ten or eleven or something. But I was thinking about it the whole time I was talking, giving you this answer, because what does it mean to expect things that aren't seen, right? So in the end, I said, but by our own lights, we can't see it, but we still expect it. That's what hope is, and that is what the Bible says hope is, right? So, so it's faith defined in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Um, but there is... There is a definition of hope in there because things are hoped for. You're, are, you're hoping for things you can't see. Faith and hope are very... I, I mean, to fa have faith is to be able to hope for things to happen that you can't see or expect. Mm, an academic sense of hope. I didn't have time to kind of uh, research this the way I was kind of hoping. But it, immediately, the question of hope raised for me, I think it's the, the 25th uh, canto of the Paradiso of Dante, and he he has this hope um, that he might be able to return to Florence at some point. Of course, he's well up his way towards uh, the Empyrean at this point, so that, in fact, there's probably no hope that he's going to be returning uh, to Florence. But in any case, this is a it, this is a theme uh, in the Divine Comedy. You know, he when he enters into the Inferno, it's the place where there is no hope. You know, the no hope to leave. So, in that in that canto, there is a scriptural definition of hope. I can read it. That would be helpful. Uh, so, here we'll start. As pupil answering his teacher would, ready and willing to display his worth. So here you have it. The most academic description of hope. 
So well versed in his subject, I said, quote, Hope is sure expectancy of future bliss to be inherited, the holy fruit of God's own grace and man's precedent worth. From many stars this light comes to my mind, but he who first instilled it in my heart was highest singer of the highest Lord. Let them have hope in thee who know thy name. So sings his sacred song. And who does not know of that name if he has faith like mine? And in your own epistle you instilled me with his dew, till now I overflow and pour again your shower upon others. So he's actually, um, in his definition of hope, he's quoting Peter Lombard in his book of sentences. Hope it Hope is a certain expectation of future beatitude proceeding from God's grace and antecedent merits. The motivation of hope springs springs from God's grace alone. Precedent worth or merit is necessary for the assurance of salvation. So there's an academic definition. So far, it seems like hope as a concept is pretty hard to pin down, even for Hannah Arendt, Thomas Aquinas, and Dante. But maybe it's not helpful to try and define hope. Maybe it's more useful to talk about what hope does in our lives. To pursue this idea, I try to investigate a bit more about the character of hope. Is hope fundamentally foolish? If not all hope is, then is there a kind of hope that is fundamentally foolish? and a kind that is brave? Depends, I guess, on your point of view. I think it could look very foolish. And I think the Gospels in the New Testament talk a lot about what was revealed in Jesus' uh, life and death and resurrection as being foolishness to the Greeks, right? It's, And I think we have to embrace that kind of counterintuitive, you know, these, these, these crazy folks hope for what's not possible. I mean, you've got to bite that bullet if you're actually going to say you're a Christian, I think, um, and be willing to look foolish, which is not, you know, I mean, uh, in a secular world to admit, uh, to admit, that's an interesting choice of words, but to say that you work at a Christian school or, you know, is to invite all kinds of, I've experienced this, all kinds of just derision, even, uh, yeah, jocular teasing on my hockey team, but there's some real hardcore atheists in there who can't quite figure out, you know, they they want to put me in a box uh, of their preconceived definition of what it means to to be a Christian, and I don't fit in that box. I don't think so. They're a bit puzzled by that. And, but at the same time, there will be boxes that you could label Christian that I do fit into, <laughs> and those may look weird, and I just don't care. <laughs> I tell people I like country music too, and if they think that means I like. Uh, you know, Ronnie Millsap instead of Hank Williams Sr., then that's their problem. I mean, I didn't tell them that. They need to ask me a few more questions to find out, right? Well, um, I think the the modern condition, I think, would like to convince us that, that hope is fundamentally foolish. I mean, I think that uh, we, I, I mean, if you asked an ordinary person on the street, they certainly wouldn't say that. They would, you know, hope springs eternal. I mean, there's lots of aphorisms about, you know, hope. In our life, and our Hollywood movies are full of hope, uh, you know, in ways that, you know, it's been, uh, in ways that it, it's quite trivialized. But I don't think our culture is brimming with hope. In fact, we're, you know, we recognize, modernity recognizes about itself that it is a, 
that we live in a in a a fundamental despair about not future prospects so much because we're very committed to kind of moving forward and, and notions of technological change and progress and things like that, but that it's for naught um, other than sort of this the sustaining of the of, of humanity. Um, you know, where where we all seem to be committed to hopefully fixing the earth and but for for what exactly? Uh, you know, of course, isn't part of the the rhetoric of even our most hopeful statements. I think anymore in period. So, is it foolish to have hope? I guess suppose it matters what you mean. What constitutes hope? Uh, hope for what? Yeah, and I, you know, I hope. You know, hope in some kind of eternal salvation is probably in the modern context some kind of a silly notion. So foolish is an opposite to brave, and foolish is an opposite to wise. So different kinds of foolishness in that sense, right? There's definitely a brave kind of hope. It takes courage to hope, but also we find courage through hope. That's a complex two-way, two-way relationship at least. Hope will, authentic hope, will always seem foolish to those who live by a different hope or by a different kind of wisdom. So you have to risk being seen as foolish to be wise and to live in hope, I think. But living in hope gives you the the strength and the confidence to do that. So there's that kind of foolish, a kind of foolishness that's in scare quotes, as it were. There are forms of hope that are I mean, we call them hope, but they are inauthentic hope, which is rooted in foolishness, so that can be escapist. They're hope, but they're not hope. I mean, this is the thing. It's, it's not quite the case that there's this thing called hope, and you have a good form and a bad form, as if hope has a kind of a structure that's neutral and it can be taken in a good direction or a bad direction, like a wire for an electrical current is a wire from an electrical current and it can carry the current from left to right or from right to left. I don't find that kind of splitting of the structure and direction of anything to actually be that helpful. Faith, let's say, to talk about faith and hope is part of this, but it's not that as human beings we can have faith, well-developed faith, that you can place that faith in God or in a substitute for God, but that the faith is really structurally the same, it's just in a different reality or whatever. If you put your faith in, your ultimate faith, in something other than God, the faith that you exercise is denatured and will be denatured because it is affected by what you put your faith in that actually impinges on the faithing and the character of it and the structure of it. Now, it it can have enough in common with true faith to refer to both of them as faith. And there's a sense in which false faith, you call it faith, in order to... It's a little bit like, well, is a bad marriage a marriage? Well, you better treat it as a marriage if you want to sort it out, right? So it's that kind of thing that you call a, a bad marriage can be almost unrecognizable in terms of 
good marriage dynamics, but you call it a bad marriage because if it's going to get on track again, you need to bring the reality of healthy marriage to bear and to see it as a horizon for whatever this relationship is. But it's not as if, oh, there's the structure for marriage and here, you know, the current is just going in the wrong direction, but otherwise it looks just like a marriage. It's like, no, it's like um, the structure of things and the, the religious direction of things need to be related differently from that. So hope that is rooted in foolishness in the pejorative sense is going to be not about the expansion of meaning and hope for the world and enrichment for all people. It's going to be it's going to be at odds with that. It won't have that kind of vision. It, more likely it's going to be hanging on to something that exists and wanting to project that into existence for all eternity or or something like that. It can be more about prediction and projection than promise and hope. It's a, a kind of a quasi-hope. It's a, You call it hope because you want to say to the person, here's what you should put your hope in. You're putting your trust into this. You're excited about this. Your vision is for this. Put your hope into this and then you'll really experience what hope is. Well, maybe if you say that uh, what's foolish in somebody's eyes is wisdom in somebody else's eyes, then you could say, surely there is foolish hope. I mean, we you know we have stock characters like Pollyanna and so on and so forth to talk about foolish hope, right? Uh, even in a progress-minded culture like North American culture, um, you know, there 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 are forms of when hope when the distinction is lost between hope and optimism, maybe uh, then the door is wide open for something like foolish hope, uh, a kind of expectation that's just not very likely. Uh, yeah, and is there such a thing as brave hope? Yeah, I think so. I mean, think of uh, Viktor Frankl's book on, uh, you know, what it is like to live in uh, the context of a concentration camp and the choices that one has, right? So in other words, that was his discovery because he lived it is that, you know, the descent into despair was not necessary, that you actually still had choices, even though everything in your environment was established to dehumanize you, to make you feel utterly hopeless. And Viktor Frankl's response was, well, that's not how it worked in my life. Um, you had a choice in the concentration camp. I watched people give of their food to someone else. I watched people help someone else stay warm. I watched this happen. I did it myself. Uh, there are, you can live with expectation, you can live with hope, even even in the context of a concentration camp. And I think that's brave hope, because bravery has to do with difficulty. So to hope in a context where hope is difficult would be brave hope. And I think he gives you an example in in his writing after World War II. So yeah, brave hope. Have I ever experienced brave hope myself? Um, not sure. I've lived an awfully privileged life. You know, one of the things about living a privileged life is it all feels like this is the way the universe is. This is the way it should be. I should have access to all this and so on and so forth. So 
the expectation of the better seems like the most natural thing in the world if you live with privilege. So what would you say that the difference between hope and optimism is? I don't think the person who lives in hope uh, necessarily uh, expects that some abstract notion of what is the best that could possibly be um, is the fitting destiny, right? It's not the end that hope is, as it were, directed toward. Uh, the better is, the, even the best, um, is always contextual, I think. I mean, if it's to be real and grounded in our experience and so on. There's a, so there, are the, I, I guess I sort of think of optimism as, as kind of abstract. As a, it's a calculation that's made on the basis of as few contextual qualifications as possible. Whereas it seems to me that hope is rooted in real body experience so and it flows from real body experience and so the better that one strives toward uh, that and one expects not as a uh, a foregone conclusion but as uh, as something reasonable as something possible it could happen and it would be so good if it did you know that's always contexted by a bodied experience i think um, otherwise it's not real so if optimism is is abstract and therefore unreal hope is concrete and therefore real so maybe that's how i would divide that up philosophically As was already pretty clear by the responses to the question about brave and foolish hope, it's nearly impossible to talk about hope in a Christian context without talking about the Christian context itself. In light of this, I wanted to know, does Christian hope look different than other kinds of hope? Um, I, would, I would want to always lodge Christian hope for me, you know, in in the commandment to love God and your, and, and your neighbor, and that, you know, that we are fulfilling something in this world, approach it in a way that is, you know, that recognizes someone beside ourselves, that recognizes the other person before us. Yeah, I think for me that does, that that one can have an, an an ethic, I suppose, without that. But that, to me, is what constitutes um, the hope, which is essential to Christianity. So it wouldn't be. It would be, uh, you know, in some kind of. It would not. My sense of Christian hope would not be in some kind of promised uh, afterlife uh, of escape. Of uh, um, I think, I think restoration is the more compelling notion for me around the hope that Christianity has to offer. I think it does, but not in a way that maybe um, rules out other kinds of hope. You know, at the end of the day, you can't escape the fact that Christianity, or Christianities, I guess, um, has a unique way of giving shape to hope because of the paradigmatic exemplar of hope in Christianity is, you know, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that will give it a unique flavor that will differentiate it from others. That doesn't mean there won't be others. There won't be similarities or overlaps, that kind of thing. 
but it will I think there's an irreducible uniqueness. So I've always been a champion of the uniqueness of all the different world religions and not trying to reduce them to some kind of common denominator, but at the same time, not necessarily thinking that you have to come to the conclusion that one is exclusively true to the, uh, I think that'd be a narrow way of looking at truth. You know, I think there is an important sense in which spiritual and religious diversity is a normative state of affairs and not a state of affairs to be lamented. I think it's very much analogous, if not exactly the same, as the importance of biodiversity on the planet. You know, um, when Christianity in lockstep with, you know, colonialism and imperialism wants to make the world into one religious and cultural monoculture, I think that's bad news. But anyway, so yeah, it's different. And I think it has a lot. Uh, it can shed a lot of light for all kinds of people who aren't Christians as well. I mean, Hannah Arendt's one of them. I think she really, you know, this kind of, it's a long story about the troubles she's had. That's just a long way of saying that I think non-people who aren't Christian can also see something there. I mean, other Jewish philosophers have too. I think that's actually a really interesting area of discussion. But uh, So there's a distinctness and a difference there that I wouldn't want to say, uh, to explain away or to reduce to so that, say, hope is the same. But I, I would stop short of saying that, therefore, people who grew up in other faiths and no faith at all can't somehow access hope, like real, authentic, existential hope. There's something special about hope, something radical, ridiculous even. Hope lends itself to definitions that can't be put into words, and an idea of a coming good that can sometimes fly in the face of reason. And yet, hope seems to play an essential role here at ICS. Hope in better times to come. Hope for inspiration and encouragement and, sometimes, just that the printer will work. We hope that our words here will carry meaning, and hope that that meaning points to something worth hoping for. What do you think? Does hope have an essential religious component? What does it mean to live in hope? What kinds of hope or hopelessness have you experienced? How would you talk about them? To join the conversation about hope, or to ask any other questions about our project of wayfinding, you can tweet at the Institute for Christian Studies or email us at gcarhart at icscanada.edu. For more information about ICS, the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, or the Wayfinding Project, please visit icscanada.edu. Please also consider leaving us a review on iTunes, just to help more people find out about and keep up with us. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, and keep wondering.